We're in the third week of Advent, as Mike made mention. Uh, and in this season, we remember the birth of Christ, and we re-anchor ourselves in our longing and our hope to see him return. And as we do this, we're exploring the parable of the prodigal son, uh, also known as the parable of the two sons. Because this parable helps us get a, a better grip on, on who Jesus is and what God's heart is like, but it also helps us understand our own hearts. It helps us learn how to live in this middle space where there's tension and wrestling and longing and hopes and suffering and frustration. It, it teaches us about our own hearts and how we wrestle with them between Christ's first appearing and between when Christ will return. In the first week, uh, Mike looked at the younger son's wandering heart, how he utterly rejected his father and wished him dead and traveled away to a distant country where he lost everything. In the second week, I looked at the younger son's rehearsal, his surrendered heart. In his loss and his pain, he came to his senses, and we got to look at the words he planned to say to his, his father when he returned home. But what we saw in that rehearsal is that the, the son radically underestimated the father's love. And as we'll see today, the play ends up being far greater than the rehearsal. And it's now that we get a turn to the father's heart, a gracious heart. And I consider this passage, and many consider this passage, to be one of the most beautiful and profound things ever recorded about God in human history. This parable stands head tall among all the literature ever penned, all the poems ever written, all the philosophies ever pontificated about God. Because it is absolutely central to the gospel. If you want to understand why God sent his son, if you want to understand why Jesus Christ came at all, you need to wrestle with this parable. Because in it, Jesus takes us right into the heart of God. He takes us right into the extravagant grace that's to be found there. And this particular section of the parable we're looking at this morning, verses 20 through 24, can never be worn out. They can never be exhausted. They will always capture and astonish our own hearts. Because the Father's heart is that incredible. On the other hand, I understand that this parable might be immensely difficult for you. It's about a father's heart. You know, maybe your own father has let you down or significantly hurt you in some capacity. And so the moment you think of God as a father, all you can think of is your hurt. You struggle with it. And I want to invite you, if you're able, uh, to put that aside, if possible. To try to let this text define God as the Father and not your own experience from your own Father. In the same way, maybe uh, you've had a, you know, a great Father. You know, maybe you've had a great example of a Father. But I also want to ask you to lay that aside. Because even the greatest Father on earth is but the darkest shadow compared to the gracious Father revealed in this parable. Uh, lastly, I realize some here may really struggle uh, with God being so deeply associated with a masculine metaphor. Now, I hope this parable will help you see why God has chose to reveal himself as a father and why this isn't an inhibitive thing, uh, but a beautiful thing. So with all those disclaimers, uh, we're going to look at three things today. The surprise the restoration, and the celebration. So open your Bibles with me uh, to Luke chapter 15. Uh, we're looking again at the 
this parable, and we're honing in on verses 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. We'll start with verse 20. Uh, And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. After rehearsing and figuring out what he's going to say, the son embarks on this journey home. He has his speech planned out. He has a strategy to make things right with God or with his father. And You know, we, we, we do this too. We return to God rehearsing. We come with our plans and our strategies. We think we have an idea of what it will take to set things right with, with God the Father. But when we truly encounter God as our Father, he will defy and surpass all our rehearsing, all our plans, all our ideas. The son, uh, he heads back to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. It seems that the father has never given up hope that one day his son might return. It seems he has this pattern of looking to the horizon and hoping a figure might emerge, the contours of his son. And so day after day, this father waits. And we have no idea how much time has passed, but it's likely a long time. And yet the father does not let go of this desire to see his younger son return. And on this day, while the son was a long way off, The father finally sees him. And when he does, Jesus says in the parable, he felt compassion. Uh, Before before we can even look at the actions of the father, Jesus wants the hearers of this parable to understand the motivation behind all these actions. It's compassion. Often in the Gospels, we read that Jesus had compassion for the people he encountered. And and when you read that Jesus feels compassion, if it says, and Jesus felt compassion, watch out, because big stuff is about to happen. You know, bread and fish extravagantly multiplied. Bodies mended and healed. The dead raised to life. This is what happens when compassion bubbles up out of Christ. But why? Why does Christ have such compassion? The Gospel of Matthew tells us in chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus had compassion for the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Our brokenness, our helplessness, our neediness, it births compassion in Christ's heart, a desire to enter into our lives and embrace us and restore us. And Jesus is telling those who are listening to this parable that this same sort of compassion lies in the heart of God. The father sees his younger son in the distance. He sees him in the opposite state of which he left. Uh, He left with everything in abundance, his entire inheritance. And now he's returning with nothing but poverty. He surely looks disheveled and poor. He's been working with pigs. His clothes are torn and filthy. He's he's likely uh, gaunt and severely weak from the famine. 
He's harassed and helpless. And yet his father feels compassion and desire to meet his son in his suffering and embrace him and restore him. And this compassion, it drives the father to act in the most astonishing and surprising way. I remember a time my dad caught me off guard with an astonishing and surprising action. Uh, the year is 1997. I was 16. Dyed my hair jet black. You know, and uh, it was a very emotional time in my life. And for whatever reason, um, my dad and I were having a fight that day. And we were going back and forth. Uh, I can't, you know, I can't remember what it was about. Uh, you know, it was. He was probably asking me to turn down my Marilyn Manson CD, which I listened to on repeat. But, you know, I just, I can't remember what it was about. And it makes the story worse. My dad and I are fighting, and I just punched him in the face. Good response, yeah. (laughs) And I I wasn't acting in self-defense. It was totally unwarranted. I acted shamefully. And when I think about that now, you know, 17 years later, I can't believe I treated my dad like that. By most measures, my dad is a good father. He's a good man. But I didn't treat him like a good father. I treated him like an adversary. I harmed him. I insulted him. I shamed him. But there's something in the way in which he responded that has always stuck with me. First, he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, do you want me to hit you back? Terrifying. Because I knew uh, whatever pain I could inflict on him, he could inflict double. So I said, no. (laughs) And he turned around and walked away and left the house for a few hours. Which again, terrifying. Like, what is he doing? You know, is he buying a shovel? Like, what is, what is going on? My dad comes home, walks into my room, turn off the Marilyn Manson, and he and he he, sa- he says nothing. He hands me a chocolate bar, nods, walks out. It was a coffee crisp, delicious. Uh, but that was it. Reconciliation. You know, that that, that was it. Male emotions at their best again. Uh, he. He didn't treat me the way I deserved. He didn't even tell my mother. When I called him to ask permission to tell this story, uh, and I talked to my mom about it too, she's like, that happened? What? <laughs> but my dad, he, he was gracious to me. He didn't, he didn't inflict punch for punch. He, uh, he was gracious even though I shamed him, and he went the extra mile to restore our relationship. It was totally astonishing and unexpected. What's the astonishing and unexpected uh, action of the father in this parable? Look at verse 20. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, he felt compassion, and he ran. That doesn't seem all that astonishing, you know, especially all these marathoners in this room. But, you know, to first century ears, jaws would drop. In their context, noblemen with flowing Robes, do not run. They never run anywhere. It would be humiliating and shameful. Aristotle, he wrote this, great men never run in public. That was it. That was the final word. Men take note, never run in public. And yet, because of his great compassion, the father runs to his son. He is overwhelmed with his desire to be reunited with his son. The father will overcome the remaining distance between them. And he runs and he could care less about convention and appearances. And there's a subtle rebuke here in the parable. 
Remember, Jesus tells this parable to religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, who are grumbling that Jesus had the audacity to eat with tax collectors and sinners. They care far more about appearances and keeping the rules. But Jesus is saying in this parable that true godly compassion cares more about restoration than separation. In other words, how could Jesus not dine with these tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes who've approached him. He must, even if dining with them appears shameful by other people's standards, Jesus will take on that shame because receiving people back into the family of God matters infinitely more. Remember, the younger son, in returning home, he had to face shame. He acted shamefully against his family. He wished his father dead. He took the inheritance. And he did this in the sight of the entire village. And yet the father runs to receive him. He doesn't respond the way many thought he should. He doesn't run out there and shame his son. He doesn't run out there and send his son off. He doesn't run out there and beat his son. He doesn't make the son bear the shame at all. He receives him and he runs to do so. And the son, he doesn't deserve this astonishing, surprising action, but it's what he is given. And while the father's actions may appear shameful to others, they're the only proper expression of his compassion. And in that sense, the father will gladly bear the shame. He'll bear the shame of running just like he'll bear the shame of what the son has done to him. When he gets to his son, he gives him a coffee crisp. No, you know, it says, the text says, he embraced him. He embraced him. He embraced him. And he kissed him. He runs. This humiliating action, he runs and he embraces him and he kisses him. This is so beautiful and intimate. It's, it's emotional and it's, it's passionate. And the translation doesn't quite do it justice. The word for embrace is better translated, he throws himself upon him. The father runs to his son and he throws himself upon him. And the word for kiss is actually to kiss again and again. He runs to his son who's returned home and he throws himself upon him and he kisses him over and over and over. This is not clean. It's not tidy. It's not neat. It's not reserved. It's not a handshake with a pat on the back. He meets him with an embrace and with kisses. And all of this, all of this, happens before any words are spoken at all. The son has said nothing. The father has said nothing. He has only acted in the most profound way, which speaks volumes. And how the father acts really challenges us. Because in this parable, the father is a glimpse into the heart of God. Is this your picture of God? I wouldn't be surprised if you said no. Often we think God is aloof. Or we read certain passages in the scriptures and we say, you know what, God is angry. Or he's hateful. Or we, or we think God is impossible to please. Or, or God is distant. And, and at best he's uninvolved in the world or somewhere out there. Or we think, you know, if, if there is a God, we have to clean ourselves up. We have to reach some future version of ourselves. To be accepted by God. And this parable says you need to abandon every single one of those notions. No matter who you are. No matter where you've been. 
matter what you have done, no matter who you are or where you've been or what you have done, if you take the slightest step towards God, he will run to embrace you. He will overcome the distance between you two. He will embrace you and kiss you. Why would the God of the universe act in such a profound way to any of us? Because he's a father. He's your father. And he longs for you and misses you while you are away. And in his love, he will not coerce you back home. But that doesn't change the grief it strikes in his heart while you're away. He wants to sweep you back up into his heart and show you compassion and affection, his presence. If you call St. Pete's home, if you're figuring out if Jesus really is who he said he is, uh, if you're still just deepening in your own faith, please do not settle for less than this. This picture of God revealed in this parable It's surprising, it's astonishing, but it is real. The Christian faith is in this God. The same God who is present in all the scriptures and in a profound way revealed in this parable. The son, he's been astonished, like we are, surprised. His father has run to him and embraced him, and now he finds the opportunity to speak. Now he has his opportunity to try to set things right, to to work out the restoration. It's time for him to say what he's rehearsed. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's missing? What's missing in his speech? The son doesn't say everything he actually rehearsed. He was going to say, treat me as one of your hired servants. But he doesn't. Now we can come up with a few reasons. Maybe he forgot, just overwhelmed by what was happening. Maybe he held it back. Again, overwhelmed by the graciousness shown to him. Yet what I think is far more likely, and what a few other scholars do too, not that I'm a scholar, sorry, I didn't mean to put myself in that category, sentence structure, but the father, it's more likely... uh, that the father interrupts the son's speech. Look at verse 22. The son is speaking, and the text says, but the father said to his servants. But, that's an important word. But the father says to his servants. It's it's as if while the son is talking, the father isn't too concerned with what he's saying. He hears it, he appreciates it, he believes it, but he is more concerned about the fact that the son has come home and the joy of that. That's all that matters. The son, yes, recognizes his unworthiness, but he has still come home. And the father doesn't actually speak to the son either, which is shocking. He doesn't speak at all, not in the parable to the son. He only speaks to his servants here. All the father cares about is that uh, the way in which he expresses his compassion, his affection, his graciousness, That it's all done in a way that the son knows he is being restored and received. Because everything that the father goes on to command the servants to do has to do with his son being restored. And the younger son, he did not expect this. He expected, best case scenario, hired servant. 
But the father says to his servants, in verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. You have to understand the father, he hasn't been looking for any more servants. Now, if he needed more servants, he could find them. He's been waiting for his lost son to come home. And although the youngest son is unworthy because all he has done, the father has no interest in letting that unworthiness cause any more separation between them. So the father says, give him the best. Put on the best robe. Put on the family ring. Put the shoes on his feet. Dress my son. Now the son, he's literally gone from rags to riches, from you know, pig deodorized, tattered famine clothing uh, to the very best in their context. But being clothed in this way carries uh, a bigger significance than just getting a new wardrobe. All these things in their context, the robe, the ring, the shoes, would reestablish his sonship. He's being fully restored as the father's son. Nothing less than that. You know, if you see a guy on the street wearing a white collar, you know he's a priest in some capacity. And you know uh, it's not the collar that makes the person a priest. The collar actually points beyond itself, right? It points to a commitment to serve the call of God. Uh, If you see a woman wearing a ring on the, the finger beside her pinky. I googled. I couldn't figure out what that finger is called. But if you see a ring on that finger, um, you know her husband has profound respect for St. Beyonce. Because if you like it, you should put a ring on it. Uh, but you know the ring points away from itself. It points to the, the, the husband's respect of Beyonce. But more importantly, it, it points, it signifies something else. The commitment, the vows, the, their love, right? their marriage. The ring isn't that, it points to that. For ancient Jewish ears, uh, hearing this parable, uh, a parable about a father clothing his child, it would immediately signify something much bigger. This isn't just about clothing. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about God clothing us. Look at uh, Isaiah 61.10 when you have a chance. He writes, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Kenneth Bailey, a a New Testament expert, suggests that given the cultural context, um, the robe was most likely the father's own robe, his very best robe. The younger son, he's unworthy to be a son, but his unworthiness is overcome by his father's compassion and desire to restore him. The father wraps him up and dresses his younger son in his own clothing. The younger son then is not um, covered by his own worthiness, but by the father's graciousness. He's not a son because he deserves it. He's a son because the father declares it. See, the restoration of their relationship is entirely in the Father's hands. It's a pure gift from the Father. The Son, he knows. He knows in his bones that he's unworthy. There's nothing he could do to restore their relationship. Even his repentance didn't warrant the restoration. And while the Son's repentance brought him into the presence of the Father, he discovers that the very presence of the Father does the restoring, because that is who his father is. 
So again, Jesus challenges those listening to the parable because they would hear Isaiah in the background. Unworthy people who have nothing to offer, people like these tax collectors and sinners, they will be clothed in the garments of God. God will wrap them up in his presence. They will be clothed with salvation and righteousness. God will restore them because God has great compassion and a desire to restore all that's been lost, his entire creation, every woman and man and child. God has no interest in keeping anyone at arm's length. He wants to embrace them and restore them, which is why Jesus is always inviting people throughout the Gospels to repent and to believe. Because the repentance and the belief will bring them into the presence of a God who desires to restore them. Because God the Father, he desires full restoration, not separation. But in the parable, the father's profound graciousness, it doesn't stop there. Like, this has already been amazing, but he goes on to say in verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. This is no small thing. It's not a goat, it's not a sheep. A goat or a sheep could feed the household. It's a fattened calf. This would have fed the entire village. The food would would rot. He would have to feed the entire village. Otherwise, he wasted the entire animal. And this is precisely what the father intended. The the, the son being restored, it is no private affair. It's not that he receives the son and then brings him home in secret. He makes it public. The father intends to restore the son, not just within his family, but within the entire village. And he invites everyone to come and celebrate with him. To celebrate that his son has come home. The son who had inflicted so much harm, forgiven and received. Let's celebrate him. Why such extravagance in celebration? The father tells his servants in verse 24, here's why I'm doing this. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The only response that makes sense to what is happening. The only response that does justice to what is happening is celebration. The father sees his son as coming back to life after being dead, as being found after being lost. And and this actually cues in the two parables Christ told before this parable. In chapter 15, verse 7, after the first parable, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need for repentance. And then the second parable in verse 10, he says, I tell you, uh, there is joy. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The simple truth is this. People matter to God. You have never locked eyes with someone that does not matter to And this isn't just mankind in general. This is each individual. You matter to God. And this is how God responds to tax collectors and sinners and and prodigals and mess-ups, to religious elites and hypocrites, to anyone and everyone who turns in repentance, anyone who turns and starts walking home to him, confessing their unworthiness. When you turn away from the life you've been living and come to God, recognizing this about yourself, 
The text says you've, you've gone from being dead to alive because without God, we're dead. We're cut off from the source of life. But God delights to restore his creation. He delights to restore people. He delights to raise them up and give them life. God doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to celebrate over you. Joy erupts in heaven when people return to God and repent. And God is extravagantly gracious to those who do so. Uh, But there is no cause for celebration if you won't do this. If you won't recognize your own unworthiness, if you won't recognize that your life, the way you're living it without God, it is just leading to death. That in a true sense, you are dead without his presence. That you are lost without him. Going from one thing to the next, trying to find meaning and purpose and not finding it, that you need his provision of grace and restoration. There is no cause for celebration if you won't take that first little step back to God in repentance and belief. But if you do, if you do, the greatest party in heaven breaks out. Joy is unleashed. Celebration. And God will run to embrace and restore you. There's a few ways this parable anchors us in Advent. The parable reminds us that God knows no bounds. God knows no bounds when it comes to restoring us. And he never gives ceases to give opportunities for us to respond to him on this side of eternity. Like the father in the parable, he eagerly awaits our return. And if you turn to him in repentance and confession, he will run to overcome the distance between you and him. He will embrace you. He will restore you. Because God's desire is to save. That's what Advent first advent was all about. Salvation, you know, God sends his son. It, it begins in a manger. But over and over in Christ's life, he says, I came to die. It begins in a manger, but it will climax at a cross what Christ came to accomplish. Just in the parable as the father bears the shame of his younger son, Christ bears our shame on that cross. That's why, what his first appearing was all about. Bear the shame of all the things we have done, all of our unworthiness, so we could be forgiven and restored to God. So he could fulfill these prophecies of Isaiah, that we might be clothed in salvation and righteousness, not a salvation and righteousness that is our own, but God's. You see, the cross is God opening up his heart to the world and showing us that there is no bounds, that he will Do what it takes. He will run to us. He will open his arms wide and he will suffer shame to restore us. And he didn't do it for worthy people. We'll never be worthy of that. He did it for people who can can be restored in no other way than through the cross. It's his great gift to all of us. The parable also reminds us that a party waits for us. During Advent, we anchor ourselves in our expectation for Christ's return. And when he returns, we're not destined to just float in the clouds, you know, 
playing the harp like to some like uh, you know cream cheese ad. Uh, you know we're we're destined for a banquet, for an unending celebration in the unending presence and love of God. There's a feast waiting for us when Jesus unites the new heavens and the new earth. What waits for us is one huge, never-ending party with overwhelming joy. And we're called to hold on to this hope during Advent. It's something so much greater than we've ever experienced waits for us. But maybe you feel like that's been slipping through your fingers, this hope that this, this really waits for us. And so Advent is a time to pray that God would re-anchor us in this great expectation and hope of what awaits. Lastly, this parable reminds us that God desires intimacy with us in the middle space between his first appearing and his second. We, we have to wait for that great party. But in the meantime, the Father wants to embrace and kiss us and lavish us with his presence. He wants to be with us in our struggles and our sorrows, in our successes and our joys, because God desires us. He desires to treat us like his sons and daughters. I get it. Our day-to-day experience often doesn't feel like this. It seems more like ideas we're trying to convince ourselves of. Advent is a time in the church calendar for us not to settle for that. It's, time, it's a time to stir up in us this desire for this extravagance of God's grace, to experience his profound presence and embrace and kisses. Because between Christ's first appearing and his return, he does not leave us as orphans. He gives us his spirit, his very presence. He's not absent in this middle space. But most of all, you know, regardless of what time it is in the church calendar. This parable reminds us that God is a father full of compassion and grace towards his wayward people. God will always surprise and defy our expectations of, us, of him. He will always go beyond what we could ever deserve. He will lavish us with his love. He will restore us with his presence. He is passionate about us. And he will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He will run to be with us. He will embrace us. He will kiss us. He will clothe us to be with us. And to enjoy the incredible, loving presence of God, all we have to do is admit our unworthiness. All you have to do is take that first step if you never have. Or if you feel like you have been distant from God, all you have to do is recognize that and turn to him. If you feel like you want to know this presence, all you have to do is ask. Because this sort of love, this sort of presence, this sort of Father is available to you right now and in any moment between now and eternity.